0: Thank you very much, uh, Pastor Lakyong, for reading God's word for us. Good morning, welcome to our 9 a.m. service at Bishan. Thank you you very much for braving and coming uh, to our service uh, today. We continue uh, our series of studies from where we left off, uh, from the book of Exodus. And so let me begin uh, with a message on a lesson on citizenship. Now, if you are not a naturally born citizen of a country, but you are one who uh, later took citizenship of that country, you would have gone through what I call a citizenship process. So the process includes, firstly, it's an invitation to become a citizen. And then it is followed by attending informative courses about the country. And lastly, it includes appearing in front of an immigration official in proper attire, to uh, read your vow and then sign on the dotted line. That may be typical of any citizenship process. Today's passage, Exodus chapter 19, is very much like a citizenship process, except it is one that is on a different level. Instead of an invitation to become part of God's nation, the people were rescued from an oppressive nation. Instead of attending informative courses about this nation, the people themselves experienced and saw the making of the nation. And instead of appearing before an immigration officer, read out the terms and agree to them, the people stand trembling at the foot of Mount Sinai, for they stand before an awesome God. And so what brings the people to Mount Sinai? Well, it is the last leg of the citizenship process of the people. So if you follow the uh, sermon series from uh, Genesis to Exodus, today we begin what we call Season 3, Episode 1. Because as they do on Netflix, let me give you a a quick uh, recap well, which they called previously. So first slide comes up. After God made a covenant with uh, Abraham, God disclosed to him what lies ahead of his descendants. They shall, they shall become slaves for hundreds of years before God rescues them and punishes their oppressors. Next slide. Now before Joseph died in Egypt, What did he do? He reminded his brothers of God's promise. And that promise is to come to them and bring them out of Egypt. And so he made his brothers swear and say, please dig up my bones and bring them with you. Next slide. God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai and then gives him a mission, calls him to a mission to go to Pharaoh and demand the release of God's people from Egypt. Next slide. And we read that Moses, he uh, felt inadequate for the job, and so God had to assure him of his company. He tells Moses, I will be with you. And God gives him a sign. He gives him a sign, and what is that sign? Which is, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Because he gave that calling on Mount Sinai. And so what brings us to the people to Mount Sinai? Why are they here now at the foot of this mountain? Well, firstly, it is a fulfillment of the sign that God gave Moses. The next time you come back to the mountain where I spoke to you, you are coming back with the people I had sent you to bring out of Egypt. It is a fulfilled sign which God told Moses. Secondly, the people are in Mount Sinai in order to serve God. The next time you appear on this mountain, you will all appear to worship me, says the Lord. So the people are in Mount Sinai because worship is the very reason why God brought them all out of Egypt. It is to serve him. It is to worship him. It is a citizenship process on a very different level for the people of God, for the people of Israel, uh, because it is not simply a gathering of a people for the formation of a new country or a new nation. It is God's gathering of a people to Himself in order to serve Him. And it begins with God's rescue. Verses 2 to 4. Next slide. We read, that there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. There is, notice, no invitation. There's no invitation for the people to apply to join God's nation. uh, Because slaves trapped under the oppression of their masters, they have no capacity to respond to an invitation. What they needed was deliverance. They needed to be rescued. They needed to be freed from their oppressors. And that is what God did for Israel. That is what he did for the house of Jacob. He is like an eagle who swoops down to rescue a falling eglit. God plucks his people out from the hands of the Egyptians, carrying them to safety, carrying them to himself. And so the eagle metaphor here sums up all the mighty works that God did in Egypt, which highlights his unmatched power against the powerful and wealthy Egypt. It highlights, too, God single-handedly rescuing them with no contribution from any person or any Egyptian God. So Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11, makes uh, this case in point. It says, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. Him is Israel, Jacob. No foreign god was with him. So there's an emphasis on how God did the rescue all by himself, without any help from any foreign god. And so when God saves a people to himself, It is entirely His own work. It is His own initiative. It is His grace. There is nothing man can do to earn it or contribute to it. And so this teaches us an important truth about worship. Our worship of God today, my friends, is preconditioned on God saving us. It requires, firstly, His call for us to salvation. So it means that we do not come to Him like a consumer looking for a good deal, you know, uh, uh, from the many God choices on, on, on the shelf and deciding, okay, I'll decide to worship this God. Our worship of God is preconditioned on God saving us. We can only come to Him... Because he saves us to come to him. Worship, my friends, is a result of God's work of grace. After saving a people to him, what does God now do? God now issues a call to obedience. Because worship is all about obeying God. It is serving the God who rescued us. So next slide, if you look at verses 5 to 6, God tells them after rescuing them, after reminding that he was like an eagle who rescued them, he now tells them, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So, friends, Israel already had opportunities to uh, obey God, but we read from the previous chapters that instead of listening to God's voice, instead of uh, doing what was right in God's eyes, they did not listen to Him. They did what was, what was right in their own eyes. They quarreled with Moses over water, and some of them refused to obey the Lord's command uh, 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 and went out on the seventh day to gather manna, Now God is making it clear, here in chapter 19, what worship entails. Obedience, friends. If they obey, then God's people will be his treasured possession among all peoples. Now friends, whenever this phrase, treasured possession, appears in the Bible, Almost always, it is mentioned along with a call to obey God, to obey God's voice, with a call to keep His commandments. It is always mentioned with the word holy. The Lord God is holy. They are to be a holy nation. And so, treasured possession does not mean a prized funko Pop, or, you know, one of your few... Our uh, favorite things, treasured possession to God is a people holy. A people set apart to be like the holy God. And so they must be. Among all other peoples, they are to be the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, priests, uh, we all know, are set apart from the commoner they're different. They live differently, their diets are different, and so are their clothes. So to be a kingdom of priests means that they are consecrated for God. It actually means that they have a distinct role. Priests, we know, they bring God's word to his people. They act as conduits between God and his people. So the call to obey and so become God's treasured possession, kingdom of priests and holy nation, is part and parcel of worship. Worship is about obedience to conform to God's likeness, to conform to His holiness. Then thirdly, we learn from this passage that worship is done on God's terms. We read that God now instructs the people three preparatory activities to meet God before they sign on the dotted line on his covenant. And these activities are, well firstly, laundry. Next slide. The Lord said to Moses, he says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and uh, let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and following. Now God, my friends, is not requiring a dress code uh, to come and meet Him. You know, much like a dress code is required in attending a function or going to a restaurant or going to a, a, a club. God's requirement rather pertains to cleanliness. Cleanliness. Wash your garments, the Lord says. Why? Because the Lord is pure and clean, and those who meet him must be clean. So the psalmist understands this. Next slide. Psalmist in Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand his holy place in his holy place? He who has clean hearts clean hands, sorry, and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So laundry, because one needs to be clean to meet God. And then we read that the Lord gives them two days to prepare, right? Two days, and then he meets them on the third day. And you ask, why two days? Well, perhaps one needs more than a day to wash and dry his or her clothes in a time when there is no washing machine or dryer. But yes, but two days emphasize the solemnity and the importance of this meeting. Because this is not your, hey, are you free uh, this afternoon for a cup of coffee? No. If you want to meet an important person, and here an important being, it requires booking a few days in advance. Laundry, two days. Now second preparatory activity is described by the word boundary. Next slide. Boundary. He now says, Exodus 19 verse 12, and you shall set limits for the people all around saying take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death no hand shall touch this person but he shall be stoned or shot whether beast or man he shall not live so you ask what's with this boundary that god requires well god's holiness demands a distance a distance kept between the holy God and sinful people hence a boundary now this tells us that God is not warm and cuddlesome he is not huggable he cannot be domesticated to our liking you know idols are like that but not the holy God so in the book of Revelation John the Apostle John saw the vision of God in heaven and what is he like well he's surrounded by 24 elders seated on 24 thrones he's surrounded by four living creatures that had a face of each own one that looks like a lion another one that looks like an ox another like a face of a man and another that looks like an eagle the awesome sight tells you that God is is not approachable like your neighbor next door because your neighbor next door is approachable, isn't he? I am. At least that's what my neighbors thought. Because when I was doing my renovation, they came in uninvited to look around the place. Because your next door neighbor is approachable. But you cannot invite yourself to meet God. There are layers and layers of security that you need to clear through. And should somebody break through that set boundary, he is toast, whether man or animal. Boundary. Third preparatory activity is what I would call celibacy celibacy. So Exodus chapter 19, verse 15, and Moses said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. Now women, take heart. The phrase do not go near a woman here is not in a way degrading women, but rather it is a euphemism to mean abstain from sexual relations. Now why is sexual abstinence commanded here in preparation to meet God? Well, I think of two possibilities. Firstly, sexual abstinence for a few days gives room for devotion. It gives room for devotion. You see, the Apostle Paul, he instructs the married, and he tells the married to abstain from sex temporarily. Why? So that they can devote for a time of prayer, temporarily, after which they are supposed to resume sexual relations. You find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, devotion, in preparation to meet the Lord. Another possible explanation for sexual abstinence here is that God is revealing something about Himself. You see, the God of Israel is unlike the egyptian gods the egyptian bull god for example named apis for example he is the god of fertility now i'm not sure if it's a he or a she but it's a god of fertility and the worship of this god includes sexual acts god is unlike the egyptian god apis God is also unlike the Canaanite gods, the Canaanite gods Baal and Asherah, whose worshipers would engage in ritual sex to ensure good harvest. We will read, in fact, later in Exodus chapter 32, a few weeks from now when we preach from that passage, we will read of Israel falling into the sin of idolatry when they made the golden calf. And offered a feast to it. We will read that what they did was that they worshipped the golden calf. And they ate and they drank and they got up to play. Now, got up to play is not playing sports or playing board games. No, got up to play is a euphemism to mean engaging in orgies as part of worship perhaps from their influence in Egypt and so when Moses tells them to abstain from sex very likely it is to tell them that this God on Mount Sinai is holy he is not like the gods your forefathers served in Egypt he is nowhere near the gods of the Canaanites so laundry boundary, celibacy. What do these tell us about God? Tells us that God is holy. And we worship Him according to His terms, not ours. We worship Him according to His holiness, not in accordance to pagan practices. So the third day finally arrived. And we read that it wasn't a fair weather day. Why do I say that? Well, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. There was a very loud trumpet blast. Weather was so bad on Mount Sinai, so bad that the people, they trembled. They trembled. The mountain was wrapped up in smoke because the Lord had come down on it. In fire. We read that from verse 18. The whole mountain trembled greatly, we were told. And so you can, you can, you can say that uh, the Lord came down in full audio effects, video effects, and tactile effects. That scared every soul at the foot of the mountain. Now, let me ask you, what's the most frightening natural phenomena that you have ever witnessed or seen yourself? Have you seen a volcano erupt? Have you been caught in the perfect storm? Have you felt tremors? I've experienced myself intensity 7.8 earthquake. When I was a teen, the ground, it shook sideways. And then it stopped for a few seconds. And when it stopped, there was eerie silence, a silence that I've never heard before. And then the quake returned, and the ground moved up and down. Intensity 7.8. I remember seeing buildings around me dance with dust coming out from its surface and the gaps of the building, as if an invisible hand, gigantic hand, was shaking the buildings. You know what was the first thought that came to my mind when I saw that frightening sight? It was not, hey, let me pull out my phone, you know, and capture this moment. It wasn't even, wow, what a sight. Let me try to enjoy this. The first thought that came to my mind during that frightening moment were the words, Lord, mercy, forgive me, save me. Why? Because you associate such frightening phenomenon to the Almighty God. It is frightening frightening because it could be a prelude to the Lord's coming down. It is frightening because when God appears, we are toast. We are toast because He is holy and we are sinful. Why is God awfully terrifying here in Mount Sinai that the people trembled in fear? Well, it is because of sin. It is because of sin. You know that there are many things that scare the daylights out of us. But nothing compares to the fear of being found out and to the fear of being called into accounting. So during my school days, nothing scares me as much as being called into the principal's office. When the principal calls my name over the classroom speaker, Adrian Munoz, come to the office. I should tell you that sometimes his voice made me piss in my pants. I kid you not. Because my sins had been found out. And now, I am called into accounting. God is terrifying because he is holy. And we are sinful. And that is why when Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, what did they do? They hid from God. They hid. And that was the first ever recorded fear in the Bible. They were frightened because God is holy and they have sinned against him. And so when the Lord descended on Sinai in smoke and fire and trumpet blasts, boy, it scared everybody. Even after, even after they've made necessary preparation ar- arrangements for the past two days, even after they've told Moses, all the Lord that has spoken, we will do. When God finally shows up, their knees not. How are they going? To worship an awfully terrifying God. Awfully terrifying because of their sin. How? Well, they need a mediator. Next slide. Exodus 20, verse 18 to 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So the people needed someone to go to God for them, to listen to God's voice for them. Because if not, they will be toast. They pleaded Moses to be that someone. To be the mediator. Now did you notice from this passage how many times Moses went up and down? He went up, he went down, he went up, he went down, he went up, he went down. The lighthearted comment I heard was that Moses must have been very fit to do that. Moses went up and down, Sinai, because no one else is allowed to go up. Except Moses. No one else could, have, could enter the thick, dense cloud from which God's voice was heard, except Moses. The people needed a mediator in the person of Moses. Because meeting God, they now realize, <laughs> is not a meeting of a celebrity. It's not even a meeting of royalty where you do this. Meeting God is meeting the holy judge who knows everything you've ever done. He does not need a jury. He does not need investigators. And he cannot be bribed. Meet this God and one is sure to tremble before him because of our sin and our guilt. Unless, unless we have a mediator. And Moses served as Israel's mediator. He went up to receive God's laws for the people. He'd come down to give God's instructions to the people. And when Israel sinned against God, Moses, the mediator, would appeal for God's mercy on the people's behalf. You see how important a mediator is? So when my dad's business failed, He incurred a lot of debts that he owed his suppliers. And one of his suppliers threatened to sue dad for breach of trust uh, because dad's checks bounced. Breach of trust then would send one to jail. And dad needed a mediator badly in order to avoid a lawsuit. And though he found one who happened to be the supplier's friend, this mediator wasn't powerful, powerful enough. Wasn't powerful enough. Because what the supplier demanded was full payment. And the lawsuit was only avoided in the end because my uncle paid the debt that my dad could not pay. My uncle paid the debt for, on my dad's behalf. Moses the mediator could only do so much. He had no power to solve the people's sin. He cannot atone and pay for their sins. A greater Moses is needed. And that greater Moses came in the person of God's own son, Jesus. Jesus is our mediator who himself paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus mediates for us a new covenant that draws us near to God, removing the thick curtain that separates us, washing us clean by his blood, by his death on the cross. In fact, the author of Hebrews speaks of the difference between Moses and Jesus and of the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. The author says, that's not the case with you. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem The awfully frightening God, my friends, is now approachable. He's now approachable. We are now righteous in His sight because of Jesus. We can approach Him boldly in prayer because of Jesus. We can be assured of forgiveness because the blood Jesus shed speaks of forgiveness instead of curse. We can obey His commandments because we have the Spirit. We can sing of God's holiness and not tremble in fear, but with joy, with joy that we partake in His holiness because of Jesus. And we as the church are His chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of His possession called to declare His praises, Called to abstain from sinful desires, called to suffer for Christ, called to bless one another. So, my friends, this passage has indeed something to teach us about God's grace. Now, friends, there's been misleading teachings going on around that promote what is called hyper grace. Have you heard of that? Hyper grace. Hyper-Grace teaches that the Christian life is lived effortlessly, effortlessly. Hyper-Grace teaches that, uh, uh, that God's laws are bad and are detrimental to one's growth. Hyper-Grace teaches that when one, obeys, when one obeys God's laws, it becomes all about him, all about her. Hyper-Grace teaches that the Ten Commandments contribute to depression and sickness, Now, I personally have met somebody who is very much influenced by hyper-grace, and he tells me, there's no need to confess your sins, because Jesus has forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. And so to him, effortless living meant confession-free living. Now, friends, today's passage does teach grace, but it is far from hyper-grace. God dispenses grace in that He saves His people, but He saves them so that they may serve Him and obey Him. He saves them so that they will be a holy nation, to be set apart from other nations and become a people like the God who saved them. So God's people obey God's laws because it is about living for God according to His will. It is living out holiness because we worship a holy God according to His terms and not ours. And when we sin, we confess our sins. Why? Because we have a mediator in Jesus who is faithful and just and forgive us our sins. This passage teaches us grace, but it is far from hyper-grace. Lastly, this passage also must lead us to view God with correct lenses. With correct lenses. Though we call God our Father because of what Jesus has done for us, Nevertheless, we must accord him fear and reverence that is due him. C.S. Lewis explains this very well in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The beavers were telling the children about Aslan. And uh, Susan asked, Is Aslan quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver responded, That you will, dearie. Make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, braver than most or else just silly. Lucy then asked, Then he is not safe. Mr. Beaver says, Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he is not safe. God is not safe. Aslan is not safe. Of course he is not safe. But he is good. He is the king. I tell you. Let us pray. Lord, we ought to be terrified of you. Because of our sins. But we come to you because your son Jesus paid for our sins. And he now ushers us into your presence. How blessed we are to have our sins forgiven. How blessed we are to be righteous in your sight. And so teach us now to live holy lives in worship of you. For that is what you have called us to be. Your holy people, chosen race, royal priesthood, yours, and yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.